God knows the worst thing you did this past week. And God knows the worst thing you'll do next week. And he can't wait to celebrate the Lord's Supper with you tonight. How is that possible? I mean, that is good news, but how does that work? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke 14. Luke 14, that's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to actually look specifically at verse 12 through 24, but let's start in verse 1. Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, 
what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I think the main idea of our text tonight is this. Luke 14, 12 through 24, I think the main idea is this. Freely invite others to your table because God freely invites you to his table. I think our main idea of our passage tonight is this. Freely invite others to your table because God freely invites you to his table. Or we could just use Romans fifteen seven as our main idea. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's really the point of the parable of the great banquet. That's where we're headed. Before we get to verses 12 through 14, I want us to look at what sparked the parable of the great banquet. As we've seen throughout our study of the parables in Luke, this parable doesn't just come out of nowhere. It flows out of, it's connected to an event before it. Verses 12 through 24 are just a reflection of verses 1 through 6. So let's look at how chapter 14 begins. Verse 1. Verse 1, we see that Jesus has dinner plans with the ruler of the Pharisees. And you may not know this, but this is a really big deal. This is big time. Because the religious circles in that day were tied in with the social circles of that day. Jesus isn't just eating dinner with the religious elite. He's eating dinner with the socially elite at the same time. You see, the Pharisees were like movie stars. And this guy is their ruler. He's like the Denzel Washington of the Pharisees. He rules the socially and the religious elite. And he invites Jesus to have a meal with him and all his famous friends. This isn't just any dinner. This is a red carpet, black tie event. And all eyes are on Jesus. The cameras are flashing. Jesus is going viral on Twitter. And then verse 2. Verse 2. Jesus notices a man with dropsy. In a crowd of powerful people, Jesus sees the weak. Do you feel weak tonight? Do you feel invisible? Jesus sees you, just like he saw this sick man. If you're unfamiliar with the term dropsy, this man probably had some kind of organ failure. And with this organ failure, fluid was building up with his legs and with his arms and with his face. This would have been painful. It would have been extremely uncomfortable. He would have been suffering. And with that kind of suffering, you can't just sit back and relax, can you? This is not the type of guy that you invite to a red carpet black tie event. But this is just the kind of guy that Jesus is there to see. 
he's going to heal this man. He's going to heal him. But before he does that, he's going to address the elephant in the room. Verse 3. He asks the question to the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus recognizes that it's going to raise some concerns if he heals a man on a day of rest. But he also knows this isn't really about the Sabbath. No, the Pharisees, they have all sorts of provisions to be able to rescue even their ox on the Sabbath. They have provisions for that. They do that kind of stuff all the time. So what's the difference? What's the difference between an ox and this sick man? I think we know the answer. It's actually really simple. This ox benefits them, and this man does not. And with that, Jesus exposes the Pharisees' whole outlook on people. They don't love people. They're just using them. Verses 7 through 11, when they're invited to a feast, they use people for their own honor. They schmooze and manipulate. They social network to get the best seats at the table. And in our passage tonight, when they invite others to their own feast, They use people, even their closest friends and family. Point number one of the sermon tonight is freely invite others to your table. Point number one is freely invite others to your table. John Bunyan once said this, You have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. That's strong. Not live today? How could Bunyan say that? How could Bunyan look at our friend Denzel the Pharisee at the top of the social and religious ladder and say, you haven't even lived yet? How could he say that? What support does he have for such a claim? This next sentence. God has made us in his image. And we don't really start living until we reflect his outward image. I'll say that again. God has made us in his image, and we don't really start living until we reflect his outward image. That's the conclusion. But within that, there are three big premises that I should probably support. Premise number one. Your nature is meant to reflect God's nature. And we get this from Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Premise number two. Your life is best lived when lived according to your nature. Your life is best lived when lived according to your nature. You can think of it like birds and fish. If a bird decides one day that he wants to live according to the nature of a fish, that's not going to be very life-giving, is it? No, that bird is going to die. (laughs) That's not going to be a good way to go. No, the bird's life will be best lived when it's lived according to its nature. We were made to reflect God's nature. 
And all of our unhappiness and all of the fighting in this world comes down to that fact, is that we aren't reflecting who we were created to be. That's premise number two. Premise number three. God's nature is outward. God's nature is outward. And we know that because God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father loving the Son and the Spirit. Son loving the Father and Spirit. Spirit loving the Father and the Son. Perfectly delighting in each other. This has been going on for all of eternity. And the result of that is that it makes God very, very happy. He is not relationally needy, and that is really good news for us. That's really good news. It's good news because it means that he does not need us. And that's good news because if he needed us, he couldn't genuinely love us, could he? He'd just be using us. But if he doesn't need us, he can genuinely love us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he does. He's always related to his people that way. When God created Adam and Eve, he invited them to a feast. Did you know that? He invited Adam and Eve to a feast. Genesis 2, 8 through 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the, land, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Assyrian. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God made, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God has one tree that they cannot eat, but he has given them so many trees to eat. In a beautiful garden. Not because he had to. God didn't need Adam and Eve. But because he wanted to. Entirely because he wanted to. God freely invites Adam and Eve to the first banquet and he tells them, freely eat, freely feast. There's no charge. It's all on me. And that's what we were created to reflect. That's what we were intended to do, to freely invite others to our tables. To have genuine love for them, to be thinking outwardly, not about us, not needing anything, genuine love. But like Adam, Eve, and the ruler of the Pharisees, what do we do? What does our text in Luke 14 say we do? We invite others so that we can be repaid. And we can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. As long as we are relationally needy, we will keep on doing this. Why? Because we're made in God's image. 
We're made in God's relational image. And when we are starving relationally, we don't want to share our already meager rations with others, do we? No. So we become relational vacuums. We're like those automatic robotic vacuums that are constantly roaming, going around, sucking up, greedily sucking up any relational energy that we can find. Like addicts using people, even our closest friends and family. It comes up in our language, doesn't it? You complete me. What an unbiblical, selfish idea. You exist for me. And then what happens? When we find out that marriage doesn't satisfy us, we have kids. And then when our kids are pooping themselves and crying for no reason... Or you reach out to friends. Maybe they can fill up this relational void in us. And with all of that going on, who do you think we're inviting over for dinner? Not the crippled. Not the poor. Not the lame. Not those who are relationally needy. Now we come to church and we weave in and out of hurting people. Maybe having a few relational touch points with our closest friends and family. And then we go home and pull our ox out of the ditch. Our main objective is to strategically find people who can fulfill us relationally. And that's really the point of what Jesus is saying here. That's really the point. He's not saying it's wrong to have dinners with your family and friends. You should invite your four-year-old to dinner tonight. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here are the dots that Jesus is connecting. If you never invite people over for dinner who relationally zap you, it's a pretty good sign that you're not actually loving the people who relationally restore you. You're just using them. But, but when your dining room table is filled with friends, family, and folks outside of your circle, it's a pretty good sign that you actually love the people who relationally zap you and the people who relationally restore you. Can I just brag on you guys for a little bit? You guys do this really well. I see this happening all across our body. And I see that because you invite me over for dinner. I can be emotionally exhausting. I know because I emotionally exhaust myself sometimes. But it's not just me. I see members, there would be no friendship apart from Christ. No friendship. There's nothing in common. And they're inviting each other over for meals. They're showing up at the hospital. They're crying. They're serving each other. 
You guys do this so well. And don't you want more of that here? Don't you want more of that? I want more of that. I want more of that in my life. I need to grow here. Maybe you feel the same. But how do we grow? How do we, how do we grow? How do we invite others to our tables expecting nothing? Because God has invited us to his table giving everything. And it's right there, it's right there at God's table that we can be fully repaid. Verses 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. How are you blessed when you bless those who can't bless you? Because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When Jesus comes back and you sit down with him at that great banquet, you won't need anything because you will have everything. You will have everything. Point number two, God freely invites you to his table. Point number two, God freely invites you to his table. But the question is, will you be there? Will you be there? Or will you come up with another excuse to reschedule? Well, about this point in the meal, it's about as uncomfortable as it could get. It is painfully uncomfortable by the time we get to the end of verse 14. Jesus has just called out the dinner guest and the dinner host himself. When verse 14 ends, there is a terribly awkward silence. You can feel it. You know what this feels like, this awkward dinner silence? Maybe you've had a a great meal planned. Everyone's dressed up, The steak is perfectly pink in the middle. Things are going well. And then someone brings up politics. Or something controversial. And then things get painfully quiet. And this is my favorite part. There's always a peacemaker at the table, right? Someone always trying to smooth smooth things over. The gravy is sure good, isn't it? Anyone want to watch a movie tonight? (laughs) Doesn't help. Well, that's our guy in verse 15. Verse 15, he is the guy who's trying to smooth everything over. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Bread in the kingdom of God. That'll be nice, won't it, Jesus? It would be. It would be nice. But he won't taste this bread. No, he's got his end times theology spot on. There will be a marriage supper of the lamb one day when Jesus comes back. But he won't eat it. And neither will the lawyers or the Pharisees or the ruler of the Pharisees because they've made plans. They've made other plans. They've made excuses. Verse 16. 
But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these, to, these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry. Jesus clearly identifies the members at the dinner party with those in the parable who make excuses. What are their excuses? They basically boil down to two things. Two simple things. Possessions and people. Possessions and people. For some, it was their possessions. There was just something about a field and a yoke of oxen that were more captivating to them than Jesus. That's interesting. They don't give a hard no, do they? They're really polite about it. They ask to be excused. But at the end of the day, possessions are what captivated their hearts more than a meal with God. Does that sound familiar to anyone in here? For some, it was people, or maybe closer to home, it was family that was their excuse. And they weren't opposed to a banquet. No, bread in the kingdom of God sounded nice. But a spouse captivated their hearts more than a meal with God. What about that one? Does that sound familiar to anyone in here? Maybe the reason you make excuses to exclude people from your table is because you are making excuses to come to God's table. You're not opposed to a little religion. And in fact, it's actually nice. It works well with your conservative lifestyle. You're not opposed to a little religion. It works really well because you need some friends and church provides a reliable friend base. But at the end of the day, possessions and people captivate your heart more than God. You have other plans. You have excuses. And for some of you, that's incredibly frustrating. I know it is because I used to feel that way. I knew that I was supposed to love God more than anything, but I I didn't. Maybe that's you. You know that you should have more delight in God than in possessions and people, but that's just not the way things are going, and you're frustrated about that. Why do possessions and people have such a hold on you? I don't know what's going on in your hearts tonight, but I have one theory. I have a theory. You haven't tasted the freeness of God's free invitation. You haven't tasted and seen how good the free invitation is and what that says about who God is. In your perception of God, you believe deep down that he only really wants you because of what you can give to him, because of what you can offer him. He's not interested in you. He's interested in what you offer And you know what? 
If that's your perception of God tonight, I completely understand why you love possessions and people more than God. If that's who you think God is, that he is just, he just wants you because of what he can get out of you. He doesn't really love you. And I can understand why possessions and people would have a hold on your hearts. But that's not who God is. That's not who God is. And friends, let me remind you that you can't repay God even if you wanted to. You're poor. You're crippled. You are lame. You are helpless. And that goes for all of us. That's where we all are. But you have to recognize it. You have to recognize it. Verse 21, verse 21, those are the only people who are invited to the great banquet. The ones who recognize how destitute they are. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is only for those who know how much they need Jesus. It is not for those who have gotten their act together. It is not for those who have cleaned themselves up. So if you're trusting in what you can give to God, what you can repay to Him tonight, I'm going to ask you to not celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. It's not for people who can walk. It's for people who can't walk. This is what the, t- this is what the table is for. This is who the table is for. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. You could be the most religious person in here tonight. You could have all of your stuff together. But compared to God, your righteousness is filthy rags. You are spiritually poor. You could be the most successful person here tonight. You make way over six figures. But compared to the God who made the universe and owns the universe, friend, your bank account is small potatoes to God. You are poor compared to the God of the universe. I want you to get this tonight. He doesn't need you. He does not need you. He loved you. He loves you now. You brought nothing to the table and he went to the cross for you. These are the two most compelling truths that I think that Christianity has. Over against any other religion, these two compelling truths. The depths of our sin and the superior depth of God's love. The depths of our sin and the superior depth of God's love. Let that sit in your lap for a minute. For God to save us from our sins, we're so bad that the Father had to say to His Son, Damn you! 
But we're so loved that the Father also said to his Son, save them. He sees the worst thing you've done this past week, and he sees the worst thing you'll do next week. And he thought, I want to die for him. I want to invite her to the Lord's Supper tonight. Freely. Freely. No charge. He's paid it all. And I don't want to coerce you tonight, but I do want to compel you. What excuse are you going to come up with to refuse that kind of invitation? I'm serious. What possession can give you that kind of peace? If you know of a possession that can give you that kind of peace, let me know. If your backyard is really that great, I want to see it. If your car can really give you that kind of thrill, then I want to drive in it. What person can invite you to their table like that? Your spouse, even your spouse, cannot give you that kind of security, that kind of love. What excuse can you possibly give to not repent and believe the gospel tonight? But maybe you feel like you are worse than the poor. Maybe you feel like you have more shame than the crippled. Maybe you feel like, man, if I just felt like the crippled and the poor, man, I would come. But Caleb, you have no idea. I've done worse things than you can imagine. There's no way that Jesus wants me to come to the great banquet. Listen to verse 22. Listen to this verse. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. You may feel like you are outside the city and God sent his servant outside the city because there is still room. He sent his servant. And you may have been wondering, who is this servant? Throughout the parable, he keeps on coming up and you may have been wondering, who is this guy? Is he the Old Testament prophets? Does the servant represent the Old Testament prophets and how they pleaded for Israel over and over again to repent? Is the servant represent Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, the great prophet? Does the servant represent us? Does the servant represent Christians? A, B, or C? I think the answer is D. All of the above. All of the above. The servant does represent the Old Testament prophets. They pleaded over and over again for Israel to repent. And over and over again, Israel made excuses. So the servant is the Old Testament prophets. But we also see that the servant is the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. What did he do? He spent his whole life going up and down roads, up and down city lanes, healing and saving the poor and the crippled. And after he did, after he did that, after he went throughout the city healing the poor and the crippled, what does Hebrews thirteen twelve say? 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He went outside the city. He went up the highway to Calvary and past the hedges of the city in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, in order to compel people to come in, in order that he could pray over us, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The servant is Jesus. But we also see that Jesus commissions his disciples, right? He commissions his disciples to compel people to come in. So we are the servants as well. Poor and crippled, yes, but also servants. Servants of the king. After his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus gives this charge to his disciples at the end of Luke. Luke 24. You may want to turn over there. It's just a few pages. Luke 24, 46 through 49. Luke 24, verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is Jesus telling his disciples? What is he telling us tonight? John, Peter, Christians, stay in the city. Stay in the city. But don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable there. After I go to the Father, I'm going to send my spirit. And after I send my spirit, you better not stay in the city any longer. You better go to the highways and the hedges. And if you do stay in Jerusalem, you better mobilize others to go to the highways and the hedges because there's still room in my house. There are unoccupied seats around the great banquet, seats that I spilled my blood for, seats for every tribe, tongue, and nation. There are seats for Albuquerque. There are seats for Guatemala, There are seats for North Africa. And there are seats for Afghanistan. Let's be clear about one thing tonight. The Taliban doesn't stand a chance against King Jesus. No, he's going in there to get his people. Through his spirit empowering the church, he's going in to get his people or because of some courageous brothers and sisters in Christ, he's staying in there to get his people. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere in Afghanistan. And he may just save some Taliban in the process. We don't know what he's going to do. But we do know that his father's house will be fill, filled up. So Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Desert Springs, let's go to him. He's outside the camp. He's outside the city. 
His outward nature is out there. It's out there in your neighborhoods and in your workplace and in Afghanistan and in North Africa and in Guatemala and in the hardest places in the world. He's out there. So let's go. Let's freely invite the nations to our tables so that we can freely invite them to the great table one day soon. Let's pray. Father, as we look to the great banquet, we turn our attention now to this banquet that your Son has prepared through his body and through his blood. By going to the cross, he has welcomed us here tonight. And so, Father, as we take some time right now to consider our sin, to consider how we have not been faithful to you. Father, as we examine our sin, Father, may we also examine the blood of Jesus who covers our sin. May we eat and drink knowing that one day we will eat and drink in your presence at the great banquet. In your son's name, amen.